The University of Central Florida Office of Diversity and Inclusion brings you Matters of Diversity with Dr. V. With your host, Dr. S. Kent Butler. And our guest, Dr. Peter P.J. Adams. And now, Dr. B. And welcome to Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. Today, we are still working and talking about Pacific Islander and Asian American History Month. And it's in my distinct pleasure to bring in Dr. Peter P.J. Adams, who studied counseling psychology at the Ohio State University and received his doctorate in 2008. Those years were formative in shaping a career with an emphasis on multicultural education, advocacy, and activism. PJ's first job was at the UCF Central, um, here at Central Florida Counseling Center in 2009, followed by a position as a multicultural educator and psychologist at the North Carolina State University. He has first worked in private practice in 2016 and has opened his own practice with his wife, Buckeye, uh, psychology. That's the name of the actual company. We'll talk more about that. Um, they live in Durham, North Carolina, and have two children, Louisa, Louisa Soyun and Simone Soyun. PJ identifies as Asian American and as a biracial Korean American. And so with that, let's bring in PJ and, and, and have a great conversation. How are you today? Good, Dr. B. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it and uh, looking forward to spending the time with you. So you have some roots here at UCF, huh? I do. It's, I'm, you know, that reflexive smile where you kind of can't stop. I've been having that for about the last 30 minutes uh, talking with, uh, you know, your assistant on the pod, uh, Kavita. Um, we go way back and um, uh, at my launching pad was UCF. UCF uh, excellent. I had my first job there. Did I get it wrong? So you have a company, it's called Buckeye? That's the name of our private practice is Buckeye okay. Psychology. Right? Buckeye Psychology, yeah. Yes. And so a, when you live, background. go ahead, please. No, I was just saying I have a similar background. My, my degree is in counseling psychology as well. I, I thought I saw that. That's, a, that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, so you were going to say? Oh, um, I live in North Carolina, so even though we're Buckeye Psychology, we live here, but everything in North Carolina is Tar Heel this and Tar Heel that. Oh, yeah. And so, are they picking up on the reference? Are they picking up on Ohio, the Ohio State University reference? Yeah, you know, sometimes I'll have clients say, well, I can't see you anymore now that you're Buckeye Psychology. They're joking, of course, but uh, yeah, but it, it's more a... Uh, uh, kind of a callback to our roots there since both my wife and I, uh, we kind of jokingly call ourselves Midwest Asians okay. uh, because that's where we both grew up. Me in the Dayton, Cincinnati area, if you're familiar, yeah. and my wife in the central Ohio, Columbus area. Um, okay. And we both ended up getting our, uh, going to Ohio State for portions of undergrad and for our doctorates as well. Okay, excellent. And so you met during your doctoral program? We'll go with that. We'll go with that. There's a, <laughs> there's a longer, uh, there's a longer a story student. there where we- There's a little meet. bit of a backstory there. Okay, all right. 
we may have met uh, the last year of undergrad. I, I may not have been quite prepared for, you know, something more serious at that time, but then we became reacquainted in the same doctorate program. Her cohort was the year after mine. And uh, what do they say? The rest is history. I the guess. rest is history. So yeah, that's pretty cool, right? So that's, I won't get you in any trouble. <laughs> so we'll move along. We'll move on from there. So what was it like being at the Ohio State University? I mean, it's so much revered in terms of talking about it. And, and people have to say Z. Um, so tell, tell me about what that experience has been like for you. The, the undergrad experience and the graduate school experience were very different, um, both generally very positive. Um, but I'd say in terms of my own um, at that point in my life, it was a process of essentially identity development. Okay. Like both in terms of contending with and better understanding how I fit into these labels, um, particularly also complicated by uh, being uh, biracial as well. Mm -hmm. um, and all the things you take on, regardless of your community, um, which community you come from when you're a, uh, at a predominantly white institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Ohio State at the time was probably about 80% uh -huh. um, white self-identifying students and, and about 20% uh, BIPOC students. Right. Yeah. But uh, graduate school itself um, kind of really pushed me deeper into some of the more uncomfortable places I had around identity. A lot of internalizations. I won't make this too much of a therapist analyzing no, no, themselves no, no, no. conversation. This is but actually pretty good. This is good. Oh. When, you, when you grow up in a, a smaller town in which, in Ohio, in which diversity very distinctly is a black and white issue. Yeah. Um, and you grow up um, in schools as I did, went to a parochial school, a Catholic school uh, for, uh, for grade school and for half of high school. That was, uh, no exaggeration, probably about 97 to 98% white. Okay. Um, and you also grew up, I'm 41. Um, and so I grew up a, I was born in 79 and grew up like a child of the 80s, right? Okay. And um, the 80s were not particularly kind to the idea of what Asian America was or how we were portrayed. And yes. so you, you grow up with a lot, of, a lot of different internalizations around that. So graduate school, all those years later, uh, became uh, an important time to really uh, kind of work through a lot of those internalizations and yeah, discomforts. that's what happens, in, especially in a, in a in a in a psychology or a counseling type of a of a situation. You are learning to um, really about who you are, your presence, your self awareness of who you are. And yeah, and yeah, and like a specific thing. And if I jump around, I apologize, but oh, fine, uh, fine. and this kind of relates to the idea of microaggressions and how those can get internalized as well. But you know, one of the uh, 
microaggressive things around uh, Asian Americans is the like the emasculation of Asian men. Mm-hmm. So you have that dichotomy where with uh, Asian women, you have the hypersexualization and the exoticized yeah. nature yeah. of Asian women. But then with Asian men, you have this emasculation. Right. And I, by the time I was in what, seventh, eighth grade, and, you know, those, those hormones start kicking in, you know, around, around yeah. junior high, I had already been forming some pretty powerful narratives at that age that no, uh, in my case at that time, that no girl would um, ever really be interested in me because I wasn't, I wasn't white. Okay. And your your background is mixed, you say. So tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. My mother is, uh, she immigrated from Korea um, in the mid seventies and she came alone. Uh, You know, let me correct that. So my mother is from Korea. She immigrated here and my dad is, he would just define himself as like a regular white guy kind of thing. And he was from rural North Carolina, um, not a not a city boy, as they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, he met my mother though, and immigrated. Kind of, she immigrated back with him, not during any sort of conflict era, but he was in the active army for a while and was stationed in Korea. Okay. And in the construction of my mind over all these years in their story, it's highly romanticized uh, because that's what it was. It was two people who barely can communicate through language, making a connection and then sort of an unexpected way in an unexpected place. And then this group of like young 20 somethings deciding they were going to start this life together. Okay. Um, so um, I, did that answer your question? I, yeah, 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 it does. And so, so their, their union and bringing you there then changes the narrative because like you're saying, when you become um, a teenager and your hormones, hormones kick in, you're starting to figure out, okay, what is this? How do I kind of fit into the world in this particular space? And then you are challenged because it sounds like you grew up in a very predominantly white neighborhood. And that's right it was like kind of a white suburbia like i knew where the other like i precisely those you're riding your bike around the neighborhood when you're young you know i i i didn't think about this until i was older i was distinctly aware of like where the bolivian family was where the other asian family was where the like three black families were i was it took me later on. I, it it made sense, but I I realized I, I knew exactly where those those people were. You know, is that where you found your safety? It's interesting that you say that. Um, one of my or ask that. Uh, one of my uh, still to this day, one of my closest friends um, was uh, from the Bolivian family. Um, the intersection happened to be school right so i think they moved here in the fifth fourth or fifth grade and um thinking about it later in life i spent 
a lot of my time at that household. Of course, I would go to my white friends' houses and things, but just kind of in the middle of the week and sort of thing, if I was going to be riding my bike somewhere, it was often there. And there was a comfort because um, I don't know the right way to say it. Like the smells are a little different. Like my house, uh, there's a, another language being spoken there like all the time. Um, it, it had that... I mean, very two distinct cultures, obviously, and communities, right. but that's it also cool. had that that familiarity to it. Yeah, so. yeah, that's that sounds pretty cool. So, when you finally figured out that you wanted to go into the counseling, um, a lot of it was because of self reflection. Hmm. I'd say. What's my story there? I'd say the initial interest was in a fascination with how, I guess the, the honest way to say it would be like how odd and peculiar like humans and like okay. uh, social, our social uh influences and how, how odd and peculiar we can be like i my initial interest was in cults actually i was able to take a class about cults okay uh and just the fascination and like how power gets constructed and the way people people don't realize often um that so many me so many they think well, that must be an exceptionally that must be an exceptional person that they would be like susceptible to a call. They don't realize that um, actually the majority of people were just like kind of you and I and through a series of circumstances yeah. found themselves kind of in yeah. this type of community. So yeah. that was my initial interest. And then increasingly it became about um, identity. And again, to me, this romantic idea, um, my dad is someone who is uh, both my mother and father, someone who they're, uh, um, incredible with people and uh, would have been great teachers and nurses and doctors and therapists. But uh, my dad was like, you know, sort of a regulations and numbers guy, like in, in, in business, if you will. And um, the idea that my life could intersect with another humans and that our trajectories could both be slightly altered for the better for us both yeah um really appealed to me if that okay. makes sense okay so, yeah, yeah so how did you get into multicultural education because of that that i think in terms of that forming more consciously and with more intention more deliberately um so that came, didn't come until graduate school. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing some stuff that was occasionally like Asian American organization related, but I was an undergrad, like, but I wasn't like doing a lot of advocacy work. And I, I was, you know, I might participate in like a minority scholars mentorship program. And I'm the upper student who's connecting with the freshmen and right. you know, that sort of thing. But um, and there was a fellow student who was a year ahead of me who 
believe identifies as Chinese American. Her name was uh, Su Hoi, and um, she uh, was someone who, despite my mixed race and my sort of halfness, like kind of engaged with me and took me in and experienced me as an Asian American, just like her. And she, for like the first year, like was kind of on me to kind of join the Asian American Pacific Islander graduate student organization. Right. And kind of stuck with it and stayed on me. And eventually I went to a meeting, had some tasty bubble tea with everybody and stayed on kind of the rest of the way. And okay. I think it wasn't just that organization but the point is like it that feels like a, a an instrumental moment and in getting me to be more deliberate in terms of engaging in that part of me and these conversations and then that expanded into really wanting to help make visible uh, marginalized groups as a whole because so much of what we struggle with I think if you want to think about the Asian American Pacific Islander collective is, is visibility right 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 and so um, when you're in the search for your own identity and then you find a group it makes it that much more um, convenient maybe to be able to explore other areas and it, you, you, you've been active in terms of your social justice work and being activists and advocacy for different things. Um, do you think that that spawned or grew out of um, working uh, or, or being a part of that group? Certainly it, it um, nurtured and cultivated that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were a lot of members of that organization over the years that were a little clearer at their time, and I don't mean this in a negative way, just a little further along in terms of their understanding of like how they wanted to uh, advocate, advocate for the community, advocate around inequities, advocate around injustices. And um, it's hard not to be energized by that, be inspired by that. And then ultimately, um, in my case anyway, start kind of carving out or your own path for that, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So what's some of the things that you kind of find yourself kind of moving towards in, in terms of your advocacy? What, what, where, and maybe, let me pull back and ask the question differently. Sure. There's been a lot of xenophobia going on as of late. It's probably been going on pretty much, and you know, I don't know this, but all your life you probably had to deal with microaggressions and all these other things that were coming up. Or aggression, aggression sometimes, or right? Aggression. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there you go. Um, that's really honest. And so now when you think about it in terms of um, what has happened, especially in the Asian community this year alone, um, where do you sit? How, how, how have you been able to kind of deal with it and, and kind of cope with um, some of the things that are happening in the Asian community at the hands of people who just don't seem to get it? Oh, I can feel, we're both therapists here, so I'll just process in real time. I can, I can feel my shoulders slump a little. I can feel some of that 
myself wanted to take deep breaths, some of the hesitancy and not hesitancy, but some of the heaviness kind of around that. Uh, and, and you're right. Like, um, I think what's sad for a lot of, um, I'll, I'll speak to like some of my, you know, Asian American brothers and sisters, um, you know, what's sad about some of the conversations we've had is that how this, how like this has to be our moment, you know, like this is our moment to like kind of take advantage of and like try to increase that voice and increase that visibility and also demonstrate within our own communities that like why it's more important to be plugged in here and kind of have a better understanding of the, 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 the dynamics and the history. Right. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, these, this sort of sentiment and the, the ways in which, you know, we're targeted and othered have been around since the beginning. Um, I'm not here to, uh, what's the word? I make no assumptions that I can educate you around any of these things because I, I don't know kind of about kind of your own journeys into, um, you know, your own community and, and other respective communities. But um, the uh, Asian, Asian Americans are sort of like the original undocumented immigrant, um, the, the OG undocumented immigrant, if you will. Um, and you know, a lot of the echoes of that in terms of their foreignness, in terms of their threat um, to what's both civil um, and um, what's secure here economically and otherwise have been around for a really long time. In yeah. um, this new, I don't want to call it a new age, but in this new moment over the last year or so, um, you know, that's, that's, this is a good, you know, you're, you're making me think it might be a good time here soon to kind of connect with, uh, with my own therapist, because I'm not sure how I've dealt with it. Um, no one has yet asked me that so directly, um, in moments, uh, I've channeled it into, uh, to rage, um, and anger, um, in other moments, um, I've been constructive and also, again, sort of seen it as a moment to be, to yeah. be visible and um, whether that's even just in my friend group and like having some conversations about that's this experience or whether that's colleagues and, and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, in other moments, there's just been tears. There's been some, uh, some uh, dinners missed due to losing your appetite, watching a lot of these videos. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's been the desire to, in a way, like, be here with you, right? And be able to share some of this and have some visibility. And um, uh, I'd say all that to also say that uh, my, my tendency tends to be, I tend to be an optimistic person by nature. Okay. And so I also touch darkness a lot. So I, 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 I'm someone who touches darkness a lot, but tend to also be optimistic by nature. So when I think about being able to have a discussion with you, I think about at a minimum, you and I both 
uh, having a positive impact on each other. I, I think about my optimism towards increasing, increasingly uh, understanding the humanity of Asian American and Pacific Islander peoples. Uh, I think about um, the interest that we can cultivate going forward in terms of people wanting to understand the context and understand our history. I think about Black Asian Alliance mm-hmm. and how that's the most underrated. That's going to be one of the most like powerful, effective alliances um, that we're going to see if we can continue to move towards that and, and cultivate that together. So this, despite the darkness, uh, I always kind of go back to that place of energy yeah. towards it being better. So. Yeah. How, how has this been, um, or how has this impacted not just your relationship with your daughters, but um, how you raise them, um, the things that are going on? And, and you know, I heard you when you said there's been sadness and other things that are going on. Um, are, they, are they detecting this? Are they at an age where they, they understand what's happening around them? My oldest turns six in about a month, mm-hmm. two months. And my youngest is 10 months old. So oh, that's, wow. she's yeah. a little bit early. So a little bit early. I'm like, let me have, let me, let me have a conversation <laughs> with you. <laughs> but, um, but you're still able to kind of shield and protect. Well, it's, again, I, I appreciate the question. I think my wife and I, who, um, if I did not mention this, my wife is uh, half Chinese, half Filipino. Mm-hmm. And so our children are like, they're, they're very Pan-Asian, right? They're a quarter Korean, a quarter Chinese, a quarter Filipino, and a quarter white. Mm-hmm. And as my dad likes to say, he's white. We don't talk about that part, but uh, we're, we're joking, of course. But anyway, he, um, or, but I think we feel conflicted around that energy. So you said, you use the word to shield and protect. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of trepidation um, to kind of, uh, you know, to kind of raise and these two, you know, young Asian American women to, into this world. I, I apologize if you hear that. Our, uh, our air conditioning's out here and they're above me here. So anyway, so we have some trepidation around that and want to shield and protect, but are also trying to kind of balance that with making sure that they enter the world very racially aware. Okay. Um, But how do you do that? You know, there's so many questions. Like, how do you do that and keep their minds flexible? How do you do that without just strict indoctrination, right? Right, right, Like, Asian people good, all white people bad. Yeah. So so when you think about your own journey um, from when you were younger to now, is there anything that you will impart to them that you already know um, to help maybe possibly make their journey easier than what you might have had to go through? The first thing that came to mind when you said that is um, like, don't be afraid to talk about these things. Mm. Like, um, believe in the value 
of what your experience is, what you're feeling, what you're questioning. Um, I hope me and your mother um, can create the safety for you to where you feel like those are things you can talk to with us. But um, if that's not always true, like find that, like, um, because I didn't have that. I have, I'm, I'm very privileged to have wonderful relationships with my parents, but I, I don't, again, child of the eighties, I don't think parents really knew how to navigate these sorts of conversations. And my mom, she's an immigrant here. doesn't speak the language. Like she's sort of learning on the fly too. And like trying to figure out what it is to be here herself. And, right. you know, um, I, we're very fortunate that our, my, my father was not an assimilationist. So I, I knew families where there was certain assumptions that were made about how the Korean or Asian woman was going to step into the home and how compliant they were going to be. And right, exactly. how, you know, you know, I, I have some sad stories about what are you doing trying to buy them some traditional garb for this or that? Like, we don't do that. We're Americans, right? And yeah. my, my dad wasn't like that at all. He was, was very much a sort of an equitable multicultural household we grew up in but they also didn't really know how to talk to me about the complexities of being Mixed. a biracial korean right. american who can't pass for white and right. right as all these things happening and so I, I was largely silent with them about everything i was feeling and questioning and thinking wow wow yeah. so part of your work now um not just in your family um, how are you helping to kind of um, explore this narrative or to kind of bring to light, so to speak, um, what it's like to be Asian American um, here in America? That's evolving for me. Okay. Um, so much of my work around that, and I will say, when I was in my multicultural coordinator role at NC State, but even just in my nature before then, um, was broader than kind of the visibility of Asian Americans that experience. Right. Um, I think part of what made me uh, effective at what I did was the relationships I built with other communities as well. Okay. Um, Asian American students, faculty, staff, and these communities were always part of that. But um, I also had, you know, very important and significant relationships, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, working with the African American Cultural Center and kind of the student leadership with, with our black students or whether it was working with the LGBTQAI communities, mm -hmm. um, you know, the women's center. Um, so, but all of that work took place in the context of a college and university setting. Right. And more specifically, all of that took place at, I've only ever been at predominantly white institutions. So NC State was the last place I was at. So since leaving, I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like. Yeah. Um, how do I carry a lot of that passion into the broader community? Right. Um, 
do I do that through consultation? Like, do I do it through basically similar things I was doing before? Mm-hmm. Training, consultation, support groups, uh, coalition building, um, or are there, you know, like when you go to an institution like that, oftentimes, especially as an Asian American who is passionate about these issues, there aren't necessarily, you may be the only one, um, but when you step out into the larger world, it's presumptuous to think you're the only one or that people aren't already doing this work, right? So, right, right, right. so what's been a real meaningful to me is since starting our own private practices, I've had a, my wife and I have both had an influx of both a BIPOC potential clients in general. Mm. and Asian American clients specifically reaching out to us and uh, inquiring um, about our our availability. Um, So a lot of it is happening through um, that clinical setting. Mm. And I see that in two ways, right? I see that in what it is to be an Asian American therapist who gets to work with Asian American identified clients, but I also see that as, I'm not sure what the right word for this is, but I feel a sense of responsibility. Okay. Maybe I'll use responsibility in being in an Asian American working with uh, clients who have different identities. Yeah, I'm like a role model. Um, well, yeah. That's the thing, right? The way we're trained and are more like, you know, psychology and then therefore the initial basis for therapy from the Western model, right? It's, it's very Germanic in its philosophy and nature. And there's yeah. very, you know, it is influenced by those values. And so there's some distinct ideas about what boundaries should look like and what's acceptable. And so, um, you know, I think part of, I don't mean it negatively in this context, but part of like decolonizing psychology and decolonizing clinical work is understanding that those cultural influences are in place and that your choices around that may look a little different. So while I'm not out playing racquetball with my Asian American clients or anything like that, you know, it's a small community and there may be ways in which appropriate kind of mentorship may fit with in the context of the clinical relationship, for example, Mm-hmm. Um, if I can speak to the other side of it, though, um, uh, I can't speak to everyone's relationship, of course, but, um, you know, uh, I think right around the time of the civil rights movement, uh, you know, 60s, mid 60s, demographically at that time, uh, at least uh, people who were here um, that were known to be here, Asian Americans actually made up less than 1% of the population. Right. And so here we are 50 plus years later and there's been an explosion of that and now we're over 5% of the population, but that's still not a lot, right? right. And so something that I've become aware of um, over time is that when a client, take a, take a white or a, it, it can be anyone, but you know, take a white or a black client that oftentimes when we establish a clinical relationship, I, in, in, in not all cases, but in many cases, I immediately become the most significant relationship that they have with an Asian person. Wow. 
Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so I, I know. I I mean, I think about it from when I started teaching. I I, I taught in Missouri Midwest. I guess that's our connection there. And um, when I went into the classroom, a majority of the people who were in the classroom never seen a person. And I taught masters and doctoral level, and majority of those folks did not in their whole entire K through twelve and undergraduate experience have a person of color as an instructor or in any type of leadership position that was in their schools. And so I was like an anomaly, right? Um, when you know when I walked in, they were like, "What? What is this?" And so I got challenged a lot because I I, I wasn't a part of that status quo system that people saw uh, when right. they were educated. Right, yeah. Like, there's definitely some shared experience there. And, you know, the intimacy can be different in some ways when you're in this one-on-one relationship. And mm-hmm. um, so it's, again, I'm not saying that this is, it's not a value judgment about, like, how an Asian-American therapist should operate. But within yeah. myself, there's sort of a sense of responsibility there. and. If people, if the safety of our relationship allows clients to ask questions or, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've had, uh, uh, I've had black identified clients over the years. Um, Let's talk very explicitly about the smaller scale black Asian alliance that we're having in this relationship. And people being able to be vulnerable and very open about like um, just having the experience of being able to connect with an Asian American and and like see that like, you know, I don't mean this in some like, uh, I don't mean this as simply as understanding history, but just that, that there is an overlap in our community's experiences and distinctive parts and that like- The intersections can kind of meet and you feel as though there's this, um, you know, I see you, this connection that you have as a person of color or, margin, or somebody who comes from the marginalized community. And I think that has to work against, you know, they're one of the other microaggressions that's so powerful and prevalent here in our society for Asian Americans is the perpetual foreigner. Yeah. Microaggression. And so think about how that plays, right? Right. I mean, I don't care whether you're, I don't care what other ethnic group you're from. Like, it's going to play in a way that, again, internalizes some sense of like otherness and like they're kind of their own thing. Yeah. So let me ask you a quick question. Sure. When was the last time someone said to you, where you're from? And when I ask you that, there's two ways that people ask you that, right? They want to know because of the exoticness and if you're from some Asian community outside of America or then they just want to know where you're from. How have you, how have you experienced it? What, when, was the, when might've been the last time somebody asked you that? The last time that someone asked me it in the somewhat microaggressive way yeah. uh, was said very amicably. So it wasn't literally verbally aggressive, uh, was about, two years ago now two summers ago it's interesting that you asked that and i immediately remembered anyway it was about two summers ago um which feels more recent because there hasn't been much opportunity for people to ask me where i've been from anywhere the last (laughs) right right, right. so 
but um and we were at north myrtle beach and if i can get into something a little personal here and get a little bit intense with piece of my language um it was asked by a younger gentleman who knows 15 to 20 who was reasonably intoxicated going up from the pool into the elevator mm -hmm. and um kind of very cheerfully kind of was looking me over deliberately mm -hmm. and asked me um like where are you from that they grow them so tall basically because i'm six two we can't tell that's another thing we lose in zoom i don't know if you're five two yeah. or six two sitting there uh, six four okay well so we're on the tall people side here no yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah, I'm 6'2". And so, you know, I told him, I was like, well, I, I'm from Oklahoma. I was, I was born in Oklahoma and live in North Carolina. He was like, oh, and then he, he had, was surprised, right? That's yeah. kind of, that's where I was from. Yeah. Um, but within the other minute of that conversation before he got off on his floor and staggered away was a, just a friendly curiosity and an amicableness to it that um made it hit a little different my daughter was with us my wife was also in the elevator kind of going like this um but here's a little bit of the heavier part um that moment became an interesting point of comparison for me because that same summer or that not that same summer, that same trip the day prior we were doing just a couple of nights there um without spending too much of our time on the details of the story uh we checked in and got our layer, kind of went to the room, put the bags down, daughter very excited to go to the pool, got in, went downstairs and uh, very crowded, it was midday. Within, oh, I can feel myself getting tight even just thinking about it, right? Uh, within an hour of us being there at the resort, um, it was so busy. My wife was trying to find some seats for us, which meant waiting until people got up to grab some. So we had just procured one lawn chair and she was kind of setting it up over. And we were in one of the secondary larger pools. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple sitting at the furthest end where they'd have the least amount of people, um, sort of a white, I don't know, middle-aged couple, 50, mm -hmm. 60. And my daughter and I were getting in the pool in about... We might have been waist deep, you know, and just trying to get her situated. And about, they were about 10 or 12 feet from us. And he was standing up with his glasses on, just looking around and she was sunbathing. And I thought I heard someone say uh, chinks, which I don't think I need to describe to your viewers is, you know, sort of. One of yeah. our versions of yes. It's a um, it's, a, it's so, derogatory word. So I could have, I pretty easily could have convinced myself that it's a little loud over there and eh, no, you know, but he ended up saying it again because his wife or whoever it was said, huh? And he said, looks like some chinks out today. And so, hmm, um, 
so all the things that happened to you physically and emotionally happened there. And um, I made a decision in that moment that we had literally just effing got there and my daughter is doing this. I, I decided not to confront it. Uh-huh. Um, but so this other incident about mm-hmm. where you're from kind of was in the context of right. this thing the day before. Right, right, right. And it kind of, I don't know how militant I have been in my life around some of these microaggressions, but it, and I'm not saying that just dismiss microaggressive stuff, but it just put into context a little bit like, you know, like this wasn't, I don't want to say that, I, I sound like well, I'm dismissing it, I say this like wasn't a big deal. Who belongs and who doesn't, right? It's like who right. belongs and who doesn't. This resort is open to everybody, but there are yeah. people who come to the, the resort who have privilege who are like, it's only for me. And so when I see somebody who doesn't fit that mold, then, and, and, and I guess the rudeness of it all, right? To be so rude as to be, to say something like that, um, and not so this, Actually, so this other incident the next day just felt so inconsequential. It's not, but in the context of this like experience the day before, it right. just it felt pounds, so it, keeps pounding. it keeps piling up and piling up and piling up. Like my wife and I could kind of laugh about it and say, well, in a different circumstance, we might, you know, he's sober or whatever. We may get off the elevator with him and just talk a little bit and just be like, hey, you know, like this is kind of how that can be. But yeah, but what stuck with me two weeks later, what, you know, I, it kind of messed me up for about a month, if I'm being honest, like, you know, here I am, as you said, protection, shielding, but also let them learn about the world, share some of the realities, but also don't indoctrinate your children, you know, the stuff about the children. Here I am, you know, what really brought the tears and the pain a month later when I was with friends at a reunion talking to a few of them about the incident was like my daughter being present and sort of the first time in my life that I was aware. I mean, she was three, man. Yeah. She's three effing years old. Yeah. And that was people's behaviors and, and, and people who believe that they have a right to do and say whatever they want in any particular space that they're in. Right. I'm sorry that that happened to you, but I, I, but I think that the realization of that, people need to recognize that. I mean, so you being vulnerable and speaking to that, and I have situations where that's occurred to me on a you know yeah. number of bases. You know, me being six four, I get compared. You know, who I walked into a room one time and someone said, "Hey, you Shaq?" And I'm like, "Shaq's seven foot tall, dude." Uh-huh. I mean, and so it doesn't even make any sense for you to make a joke like that because it right. really isn't. Um, yeah, but you're black and you're over six foot three, so therefore, <laughs> oh, and you uh, shave your head. And I shave my head exactly. And so those things that people don't recognize, and I think they're being funny, they think they're being cute, but they they're they're rude and they're obnoxious, and 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 they they also set the space where people believe that they have a right to kind of say whatever they want about you. Right. And, and dismiss you if they need to or overlook you. And so those same people are the people who, like, when you go to a store to get support or help, they, they, they look past you because they don't see you yeah. um, in your own particular space. And, and, and you also have to wonder, if somebody said that about you, would you how would you feel? 
because mostly people of color or people from marginalized communities, BIPOC individuals, don't typically um, talk like that. I mean, right. there it's, are some people who are on the extreme, but majority of people just want to live their life. Right, right. We're not saying 0%, but yeah. right. Right. And, and I don't know if this feels like too much of an extension here, but to focus back on AAPI, um, just the continued cultivation of solidarity, both across, because I heard in your previous podcast, you all talk a little bit about, I think with Dr. Buhain, I think it was. Uh-huh. I had a, I, I, I sort of partially agreed with her. There was a moment where she had mentioned that the Asian American label and like, well, we don't really connect. Like these groups don't really connect. And I, I partially disagree with that uh-huh. in, in the sense that um, certainly it's extremely important to our communities and the 40 plus ethnic groups right. to maintain that distinctiveness of who they are but also um asian americans um at least since the 60s have been really trying to we've been in a power struggle over control of what asian american means in this country right are we going to dictate what it means and what the experience is are we collectively going to be a larger political force than any one group alone right the one chopstick is easy to break but get a hundred it's hard to break right Right, right, right. like are we going to take that on ourselves are we going to command and dictate um what we need and what our issues are or is asian american going to be taken over by media narratives by the model minority myth you know are we going to let other people claim it and decide what it is and so um, so again, not a debate here or anything, but that's kind of my partial, partial disagreement, if you will. And, and so, but I extending that solidarity past Asian American groups, understanding that, um, when, uh, black bodies are not safe in this country, that that is directly relevant to your own experience, barring just the fact that we can have compassion about communities outside of our own, right. but in a slightly more, I, I don't know, self-focused frame, thinking about like, that is a direct, that, that, that is directly relevant to you and your community as well. Yeah. And um, so, I don't know. I mean, I could speak probably for an hour alone about wanting to cultivate this and um, specifically, I know it's the third time I brought it up, but kind of Black Asian Alliance and um how much untapped there is there in terms yeah. of like how many like i mean the black community and the asian american community, we hardly often hardly know much about our own history right like much less so okay we don't even know about that much about our own history so we're gonna know like you know we're gonna be deeply connected to, to another communities like right because it's not taught <laughs> right and so the significance of that right so the, the significance of understanding why culture is important, why having an identity development is, is important. Because what ends up happening when you don't is that you, you kind of succumb, right? You, you're kind of wandering and you're lost. And, 
and I, you know, it's really interesting because um, I believe that people in the white community have a culture, yet they have convinced themselves in some cases that they don't. That's part of what happens when you've been centered, right? And yeah. I say that with compassion, actually, to white peoples and our clients who come in and feel culture-less. Yeah. And, I, I'm, I'm, and so and I can't explain to them what a culture is because in some sense, they may have come from Ireland or Scotland or England or whatever have you and felt that they had to leave that mm-hmm. to kind of assimilate into the American culture. But the truth of the matter is they didn't because their sister, their, 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 their traditions and things don't follow them. They're just not highlighted in, right. in, in maybe in their, in their really experience. Right. So, you know, I, you know, I don't think that what we do in terms of our food choices and how we celebrate certain things is different than what white people do or what, you know, but right. they don't see that in the same context. Right. And it's hard to have that conversation with them because it's like, you know, you celebrate a holiday this way, that's, that has some significance. That might be because of your cultural background. Well, sometimes it's cutting and sometimes it can be vicious, but other times like there are, you know, we may joke around, you and I may sit down for a drink somewhere and we may joke around because uh, we're comfortable with each other about like some of the some of the little funny nuances in like Korean culture or black culture. And, and we'll also do that about white people, right? Like there's like this picking on aspect of that. Um, but done with any disparaging, but that's, it can be cutting at times and you do see that, but the point is like, but to your point of the absence of it, you don't see that from white people, like kind of picking and like kind of laughing about the subtleties of like their own, their own community in fact even the word community even in 2021 a lot of my students uh, or a lot not students i'm sorry a lot of my my white clients like when i say the white community it doesn't resonate and i say it on purpose because i know a lot of the time right 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 right. they're more individualistic yeah it's not cultivistic um so i think the asian community and the black community are more about um coming together and, 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 and moving forward as a community, whereas it's more individual maybe in the white community. Well, and I'm sympathetic to the idea that within the Asian American Pacific Islander label, which was actually created by Asian Americans in the late 60s, it mm-hmm. wasn't like just a demographic thing. Right. Um, we're able to have these conversations and frankly deal with the annoyances, frustrations and difficulties of both wanting to be a collective and understanding the power we can have in that and maintaining the distinctiveness. And that didn't happen for the idea of whiteness, right? In fact, because whiteness has expanded over time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not now what it was 200 years ago. Right. But then within that expansion also didn't come as much of the, like, main, the, the, the maintenance or the maintaining of the distinctiveness, right? Yeah. Because I think that's, probably maybe because of privilege i don't know yeah you and i aren't the foremost scholars in this but yeah i think there's a conversation to be had about that piece right yeah Mm -hmm. excellent excellent 
Well, I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to, to kind of sit and talk with you. We'll have to definitely bring this back and, and, and talk some more. I'll be um, honest with you, Dr. V. It went so fast <laughs> that, you know, um, if there's, I see how diverse y'all, y'all speakers are and students and people from all over, but if you're ever kind of doing a second lap, um, I, I'd love to come oh, back sometime. Yeah, and- let's just go ahead and put it on the books. I mean, it's, it's okay. Um, actually, we have openings next month. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, talking generally, talking about some specific issues, like yeah. it's been really fantastic to connect to you both as, uh, you know, a member of our communities, as someone who used to be at UCF. Yeah. Like, um, thank you so much for today. Oh, this was great. This was phenomenal. And um, I'll have to figure out what, you know, how you're connected. Are you connected with the American Counseling Association? Through the American Psychological Association. Oh, so you do with APA. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I actually am a part of the, the Association of Counseling, uh, you know, American Counseling Association. And okay. I'm stepping in as a president this year. I have to bring you on as a, um, come in. You, you got to come a member and hang out with us over in the counseling side of the world. I know a lot of counselors and, you know, we can, uh, we can mix blood. That works. That's good. (laughs) Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, thank you for sharing and being vulnerable about your experiences. I think those are the messages that we need to continue to put out and that the community needs to be able to embrace and and, and hear. Um, No one should ever have to deal with that, right? You should never have to be in a space where somebody is is, um, demeaning you or your character or your community just because they think they have a right to, right? Sure. And you know, and and not even to take into consideration that a three-year-old was there. Right. Those are the things that uh, people don't seem to understand when somebody says, "Well, this is what's happening. This is why I'm upset about what just happened or occurred," and they're looking at it as, oh, "Get over it," you know, brush it off. But you you can't brush it off when the very next day you're in an elevator and the same type of thing happens. And then the very next day you're sitting at a restaurant and something else happens. And, or you, you're, you're walking down the street and somebody wants to yell out something as they're driving by. Um, and then are, 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 are mind boggling. And I know we're concluding our time, mm-hmm. but I also want to piggyback on that and emphasize that this is how just the burden of caring of that is relevant where you kind of can walk into every day or each week and you start to question how you're even interpreting things because you've seen your community have certain experience or you've had them yourselves and so you you sit with that weight and you walk through each environment and you aren't quite sure yeah. always kind of why someone's engaging with you. After a while, you can't deny it any longer. Yeah, right. And right. You know, I think one of the things that may have come, I think the relationship that sometimes comes out of the Asian community, the, the, the thought is the model minority and, and, um, and just stay safe and, and, and you know, stay below the radar and everything's going to be okay. But I think now people are opening their eyes to the fact that, you know what, people still see you differently. As much as you may try to fly below the the radar, people still treat you with disrespect sometimes and think that they have a leg up on you or they're better than you um, just by virtue of of how they see themselves and their privilege. 
yeah and like i said you know i'd love to come back we could do an hour on the model minority myth alone we could yeah. do and i could i could come back and highlight what in now not 50 years ago but what asian american organizations are doing right now around their own communities around combating uh, anti-blackness let's do this um, let's already put it on the books let's do a part two all right. Let's, let's, let's come back. Let's look at a date and, okay. and, we'll, and we'll continue this conversation. We'll have a part two, you and I. I'd be honored to do that. You want it? All right. Yeah. Good, yeah. good, good. All right. Thank you, um, Dr. Adams. I really appreciate you um, for being here and being a part of this conversation. Um, you have um, really um, been able to be a, a bright spot in, in this talking about it and helping to understand how we can communicate and come together. Um, it's, so it's been great. Even though you are from the Ohio State, <laughs> yeah. it's okay. Um, I it come from the, the University of Connecticut. And, um, and so um, we don't have the in front of us like that, right. but I understand it coming from Ohio and, uh, and I, I really appreciate it. So we'll get Kavita to kind of work out another and we'll come back and we'll just start talking about the model minority. We'll just label it that. Whatever you want to do. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, that concludes our episode for today, but I want you all to please join us next week. Uh, we have Elizabeth Thompson, uh, who is a part of Valencia downtown, who's going to come and talk with us. She has a lot of great experiences working in the Paramore district. And we're going to have an opportunity to talk with her and, and see what um, life is like on her end of the spectrum. And so thank you all for your time and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our show. This has been Matters of Diversity with Dr. B.